All right, let's dive into God's Word. We have a wonderful passage to be able to go through today. We're going to put them up on the screens because it's a combo of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But just as we begin, let me give you the fill-in-the-blank that's on the sheet in front of you that was handed to you at the front door. Let me, let me just say something I think we can all relate to. Uh, there are times when we want to worship and there's times when we don't. There's times when we feel it and times when we don't. There's times when... when you just don't feel right. You feel maybe let down or you feel crushed or you feel sad or you feel whatever. And the idea of saying, God, you are so good, seems a million miles away. But here's the reality. I was reading in Revelation when we went through that study. And I remember it catching my attention that every time they said, holy, 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 the angels would shout, the elders would fall down and they did it over and over and over again. And I was thinking, you know, my practical mind was like, wait, 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 they do this constantly. When do they get a coffee break? When do they, you know, <laughs> I have to use the restroom, sir. You know, how does that work? Right. And what I realized was what John was seeing was consistent worship. And here's my point. Even when we don't feel like saying God is great, God is still great. Even when we don't feel like God's on the throne, God's on the throne. Now, what I'm going to share with you today is a message that by the time I get done, you're going to want to praise King Jesus. But tomorrow, when I don't teach you that message, he's still worthy to be praised. The fill in the blank in front of you is our glorious king is worthy of our praise. Our glorious king is worthy of our praise. What I mean, and this is a phrase I'm going to use over and over and over. I want you to lock it into your head. Do not allow your circumstances to dictate your theology. Do not allow your emotions to shape your praise, right? Because some, whether we feel like it or not, he is worthy to be praised. So let's dive right into it. We have a lot to go through together. And it begins like this. If you remember, Jesus has been crucified. He had the nails through his hands and his feet. He is hanging there on the cross. What you will find out is that Jesus hung on the cross from 9 a.m. till 3 p.m. He was on the cross for six hours. What happened during those six hours? That's what we're going to study today. All right? It starts out like this. And the people, meaning the regular Jewish people, of which there was a mixed crowd, stood by watching Jesus on the cross. But those who passed by, religious leaders going somewhere, pilgrims coming in for Passover, they derided him. They kept slandering him, wagging their heads in a prophetic fulfillment of Psalm 22, 7. And they were saying things like, aha, oh, I see you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Why don't you save yourself? If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. All right. Why are they saying this? Well, first of all, there's a couple things we need to know about the environment. Jesus, the Bible says, was crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem. There's a sign above his head in three different languages saying that he's the king of the Jews. Why is it in three languages? Because he's in a public place that's multinational and multicultural. The point of crucifixion is a public warning to everyone else, don't mess with Rome. They want him in a public place. In other words, lots of people saw Jesus hanging there and they were just coming into town. Now, remember, they have their kids with them and everything. And here is hanging a naked guy beaten and bloody. 
with signs over his head on what he did wrong. So all the kids are going to go, Mom, what, what's wrong with that guy? And the mom's going to go, he's a bad guy, honey. That's why he's hanging there. So everyone walking in, if they don't know the story, they're all saying Jesus is a bad guy. And then they'll make fun of him as they go by. Well, that's what you get for being unrighteous. That's what you get. It was a very judgmental society, right? They were going, well, clearly you're hanging there for a reason, man. Well, the religious leaders were coming through as well, causing problems. But just passerbys, they're like, wait, wait, I heard about you, man. A couple years ago, you were like, hey, I'll show you a sign. Destroy the temple. I'll rebuild it in three days. What, it's been over 46 years to get the temple where it's at. You're gonna, if it gets destroyed, you're going to rebuild it in three days. You're really that cool. What did he mean? Destroy the temple of my body and I'll rebuild it in three days. Here's what's fascinating. That's about to be fulfilled in three days. Incredible stuff. The, the other couple things that we need to know is they use this phrase. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. A couple things you need to know about that. Number one, if he's the son of God, he can't come down from the cross. He's on there for a reason. So the irony of the question or the irony of the challenge is that he could, but he will not. That's the whole reason why he came. They see it as weakness. We see it as strength. Yeah. The other thing that's intriguing is where have you ever heard the phrase, if you're the son of God before? The temptation in the desert. Do you remember this? Uh, Jesus is in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights being tempted by the devil. The devil comes up and goes, hey, if you're the son of God. Now, Satan knew exactly who he was. If you're the son of God, casting all these doubts about identity, turn these stones into bread. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here and your angels will catch you. Show, do a show of power. What you're hearing is the same words of Satan come through people. Does that ever happen? Yeah, a lot. Why are we helping Satan do his job? Why are we condemning ourselves? Why are we condemning each other? Why are we casting accusations on one another? I think Satan's already doing that pretty well. Oh, well, you're a loser. You're this. You're that. Why are we helping him out? I think we should be doing the counter, right? I think we should be building one another up, encouraging one another. I think we should probably be doing things a little bit more lovingly, right? I think that's kind of the point. It says, it talks about leadership, does it too. Look at the next passage. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him to one another. The rulers scoffed at him. Let's pause. The reason they're all named is to say holistically, Israel's leadership rejected Jesus as the Messiah. That's why the nation ended up being condemned. It says, they scoffed at him saying, he saved other people, but look at him. He can't even save himself. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his Messiah chosen one. Let the Christ, the King of Israel come down now from the cross that we may see and we may believe in him. Oh, he trusts in God, huh? Well, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Well, is he? He is, but they were making fun of him. They didn't believe any of that. Huh? One commentary said this, and I thought it was powerful. He could have come off the cross, but if he did, there would have shown that there was a limit to God's love. He could have said, I'm done paying. I've done enough. I'm out. He didn't. He hung there all the way to death to demonstrate that his love knows no boundaries and limits for his people. 
He said, I'm not stopping this pain. I will take everything that you got. I will die a sinner's death and take all the wrath. I will take all the pain. I will take all the torture. I will take all the disconnection so that my children would be safe. That type of love. Yeah, thank you, Jesus. That type of love is what you're seeing poured out on the cross. He's not going to go halfway. He's not going to go two-thirds of the way. He's going all the way to demonstrate his love for his people. That's the kind of Jesus we serve. It says, and it wasn't like they were the only ones. The Roman soldiers were involved. Next passage, the Roman soldiers also mocked him even more. Remember, they're mad at the Jews and there's all that animosity coming up and they're offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, if you're as important and powerful as people say you are, just save yourself, man. But once again, there's that Satan thing, save yourself, save yourself. He's like, I'm not here to save myself. I'm here to save you. If I save myself, you're not saved. I need you to be saved, not me. Let me describe a little bit about what's going on with the wine thing. You're going to see three offers of wine on the cross. The first one you already saw. The first one was wine mixed with an anesthetic. Wine mixed with a drug that would help dull the pain. Why did they do that? Because as much as this was barbaric and it was torturous... There was a certain practicality to give the guys that you're nailing on there a drug so they don't flinch, they don't pull back, it makes it a lot easier, let's just nail these guys, they'll feel the pain later. They offered him an anesthetic and he rejected it. He wanted to feel the full pain. They also offered him wine right here. This is just regular drink, everyday drink. They offered it to him here. Why? Most scholars believe that it was to prolong the torture. Here's why. You die on the cross by exposure. It's supposed to be long. Most people would hang on the cross maybe up to four or five days. That was the point to make it long. But what happens if you die of dehydration first? It shortens the process. So they would periodically offer wine to keep you going because they wanted to stretch it out. So as normal policy, they offered him wine to drink. He's like, no, I don't need it. I don't need that right now. Now he will take the next one. And you'll see why here in a moment. Then it says, one of the robbers, who are those guys? You know, we always say, well, are they thieves? Are they robbers? They're actually insurrectionists. They're rebellion leaders. They were the guys with Barabbas. They were the guys that tried to take over Rome. They tried, they probably killed some Romans in the process. Now, now you know why the Romans hate the guys hanging on the cross. Those are the enemies. And the reason why they use the word robber, what's the difference between a robber and a thief? A robber uses violence and it's public. You know what's happening. A thief can sneak in and be secret and silent and take something. A robber uses force. That's why the word's here. These guys use violent force to get something done publicly. All right? So that's who Jesus is hanging with. One of them who was crucified with him, also reviled him. Meaning he's angry, he's bitter, he's hanging there. He starts piling on with Jesus in the same way and railed at him out of his frustration saying, are you not the Messiah? Why don't you save yourself? Oh, and save us while you're at it. We could all use a little help right now. And he's making fun of him. Okay, 
couple powerful things on why Jesus is hanging with bad guys. One of them is prophetic fulfillment, yeah? The Bible said it was written before, hundreds of years before, that the Messiah would be named with bad guys. So, first of all, it's prophetic fulfillment. But here's what I think is rather powerful. Who should be hanging on that middle cross? Who was the guy that got released? Because one of two people was going to get released. Who was supposed to hang there? Barabbas. But who is hanging there? Jesus. There's the substitution. Where is Barabbas? I have no idea. He's out doing something, going somewhere, but he's free. Who's hanging there? But Jesus Christ in his place. Is Barabbas a good guy? No, he's not. And you watch that Jesus replaced it and he was giving a visual demonstration of what he's offering to us. I will hang there for you. I will take all those hits so you don't have to. I lived a perfect life all the way through from birth all the way through 33. And I made sure that I was the perfect, obedient servant of the Father. I handled every relationship right. I handled every law right. I handled every situation right and perfect to the honor of my Father so that I would have a perfect record. And now I want to trade it with you. Can you give me your dirty, messed up record and I'll trade you. I'll take the hits, not you. That's the love of God. That's why it's so powerful. The other thing that a commentary mentioned that I thought was interesting was hanging there was two different ways to be free. You got the insurrection rebellion, do it yourself, and you got Jesus. Are you going to earn your salvation or are you going to allow Jesus to do it? Right? Well, that's powerful right there. There's a whole sermon. Moving on. <laughs> so one guy is making fun of Jesus, but the other insurrectionist rebuked that guy publicly saying, do you not fear God, man? Do you have no respect since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? In other words, dude, you're hanging here and you're going to die and go see God. Is this really how you want to go in? You really want to mess with Jesus and we indeed justly we're hanging here because we're receiving the due reward of our deeds Man, we deserve all this, but this guy has done nothing wrong. He's innocent God has called Jesus innocent A robber knows that Jesus is innocent Pilate's wife knows he's innocent Pilate knows he's innocent Everybody knows he's innocent, but the religious leaders of Israel That's messed up, right? Did this guy get a change of heart or was he always on Jesus' side? Because uh, if you read Matthew and Mark, it, it's in plural. It almost suggests that they were both making fun of him and then at one point a guy switched over. I, I, I have no idea. Here's what it does mean. And there's been a million sermons on this guy. Here's what you need to understand. This guy is about deathbed conversion. All right? Watch what Jesus says and how he interacts with him because this is powerful and he said Jesus Now this is a Jew. He could have said son of David. He could have called him some formal title. He didn't Jesus it's personal now Jesus remember me show me your favor when you come into your kingdom. I Know a little bit about you. I know you're in charge and I know you're my only hope and Jesus said to him, listen up, boy, this is deep. 
today you will be with me in the garden of God. Whoa. So, wait, wait, wait. So that guy gets saved. There's not a lot of people in the Bible we have confirmation that they're saved. I mean, there's all these debates about what about Samson, what about Saul, what about Judas, what about, I mean, everybody has these debates, right? This guy we know is locked in. We know he got saved. So what happened? How did he get saved? What did he, did he get off the cross and go down and get baptized? Is that what, did he get back up there? Is that what he did? Did he make sure that, uh, you do have my tithe envelope, right? Is that, is that what he did? Did he sign up for BSF? right? Okay. No, he didn't. What did he do? He surrendered. What does that look like? I don't know. This guy, they record it in one line. What did he do? Jesus, I don't know everything about you, but what I do know I'm interacting with right now. And I know you're my only hope. I know that I can't do anything about this. I know that I need you. I know you're the boss. So I want to do it your way. You're in complete control. Would you please just rescue me? That was it. There was nothing religious about it. There was just surrender. That's why we're so focused in this church on just honesty. Just tell me where you're at. We don't got to play a game. We don't got to be too fancy. We don't got to go through a whole bunch of steps. What does surrender look like? I don't know. It looks different for everybody. Some of y'all are hard-headed, right? And your surrender looks brutal. And then there's a bunch of you that are just pansies. You'll cave at the snap of a finger, man. You're just like, oh, man. Okay, great. That was me, right? I got no backbone when it comes to that stuff. I just caved right away, right? So I don't know what surrender looks like to you, but I do know it's necessary. This man, do you understand it also demonstrates that as long as you have breath, the cry of salvation and the offer is right there for you. Oh, but I did some bad stuff. Did you really? I can tell you that people in the Bible did worse. Okay, whatever you got, they did worse. Yeah, but you don't understand what I did. I don't care what you did. What, did you kill Christians for a living? Well, Paul the Apostle did that and became the greatest evangelist of all time. Oh, what did you deny Jesus in front of people? Oh, Peter did that and he became the head of the church. So I don't know what you did, but it's not that impressive to God. His grace and forgiveness is bigger than that. Amen? Amen. It was now about the sixth hour or noon. And from noon, there was darkness over the whole land until 3 p.m. at the ninth hour when the sun's light failed. What's this darkness about? Is it an eclipse? Nah, probably not. Passover's at full moon. Is it a Scirocco? Is it a dust storm? I don't know. Is it cloud cover? All I know is it's miraculous. Why? Because of the timing. How odd. All of a sudden the land goes dark for three hours. Is that important? Yes, it is. Why? Do you remember the Passover story? God brought down plagues on Egypt. Do you remember that? One of the plagues was darkness. How long did it last? Three days. How long is Jesus going to be in the tomb? Three days. How long does the darkness last here? But three hours. Is that important? Yes, it is. What does darkness mean? Darkness means judgment and darkness means mourning. God is trying to say something that all of creation is mourning over sin. Is it mourning over people hanging the Son of God on the cross? Probably. Is it mourning over the fact that Jesus took on the sin of the world and that wrath of God was coming against him? Probably. But most scholars believe that during this period of darkness is when Jesus did the majority 
of his payment of being a sinner and dying a sinner's death. Because what he will say during this time indicates where he was at. He's going to say some of his most famous lines here. The, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This type of stuff. God is bringing all the heat on him. There is separation happening between the father and the son. There's this, there's this deep torment. There's this loneliness. There's this abandonment. There's this stuff that we as Christians will never have to face. Because he faced it on our behalf. And the land went dark. So the soldiers did these things by crucifying him and gathering, taking his clothes. And, but not everyone was bad, John says. For standing by the cross of Jesus were four women. Four women? Wait, what are they doing here? Who are these people? Four women. Who were they? His mother named Mary. His mother's sister named Salome. The wife of Clopas named Mary. And Magdalene named... Okay, guys, it's an easy quiz. The answer's always Mary. Right? I mean, was that? Well, that wasn't a tough one. Okay, why is everyone named Mary in the Bible? I have no idea. So it was basically Salome, Mary, Mary, and Mary. Right? Which kind of reminds you that... Uh, this is Daryl, my other brother, Daryl. You remember that? Okay. Most of you are not old enough to remember that. Okay, well, it was funny at the time. How many women? There are four women. What are they doing there? Where are the guys? I remember all the guys doing something like, hey, we'll die for you. We're hardcore. You all remember that? And they were like, yeah, we're big and bad. And then all of them are gone except for one? And the women are there? Why? Where did these ladies come from? They were disciples. You go, well, no, 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 they're women. I don't think it. No, no, no. Mary and Martha, Mary got to sit at the feet of Jesus like all the other boy disciples. The way that God... The way that Jesus Christ involved women into his ministry was earth-shattering in that culture. These women financed the operation. They traveled with them. They were most likely family. Because here's who the women are. Jesus' mom, John's mom. You've got to remember, John's mom is Jesus' aunt. John and Jesus are cousins. They're not only best friends, but they're cousins. And so you have Jesus' mom, Jesus' aunt... Mary, the wife of Clopas, we don't know anything about, but it's possible that she was a, a parent of another one of the disciples, some scholars say. And then we have Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary Magdalene's not tied in other than being a disciple. She gets such an honor that she will be the first one to see Jesus back from the dead. These women are of high honor. They were the last ones at the cross and the first ones at the tomb. Wow, what incredible women of God advancing the kingdom notice what happens when the when jesus saw his mother mary and the disciple whom he loved which was john his best friend standing nearby close enough to talk to he said to his mother woman behold your son then he said to his disciple behold your mother and from that hour the disciple took her to his own home what in the world is going on there jesus just did a handoff john come here for a second I need you to take care of mom for me. I'm going out. Why is he doing this? Because you cannot forget Jesus is a good Jewish boy. 33 years old fulfills the law. The law says honor your father and mother. What's Jesus going to do? Honor his father and mother. 
As much as we play this game where he's like, who are my mother and my brothers? All those sitting around. Okay, Mary was in the crew. Why didn't he hand her off to the other brothers and sisters that he had? Because they're not there. Why? They don't believe in him yet. And he wants his mom cared for by a Christian. He wants his mom cared for by his best friend. Now, John is her nephew, so it's already a family tie-in, right? Hey, John, I need you to take care of your Aunt Mary because your mom, Salome, has a husband. His name is Zebedee, and he runs a whole fishing business, so she's fine. My mom's a widow. I need you to care for her and watch over her. Yes, sir, I absolutely will. Tradition shows that John ended up moving to Ephesus, and he took Mary with him later on. And so they both have homes there in tradition. All right. So he watched over her. All right. Why is this so important? Well, to me, it it says this, Jesus is in the worst torment of his life. This is worse than the garden of Gethsemane where he sweat like great drops of blood, right? This is worse where he was questioning everything. This is worse. And in the middle of it, he says seven statements Three of those are ministry to other people. First one, Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing while he's being nailed there. Second one, he's doing evangelistic ministry with the thief on the cross, worrying about his salvation. Third one, hey, can you take care of my mom? While he's hanging in torment, he's a pastor the entire time. While he's hanging there, you think that limited his ministry? Absolutely not. He looked around, who needs me? Mom needs me, this guy needs me, these people need me. His torment didn't shut down his compassion for other people. That's incredible. No wonder he's my hero, right? Absolutely, he's awesome. About the ninth hour at 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He shouted saying, Eli, Eli, Lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, this man's calling Elijah. Was he? No. Why do they think that? Because they can't understand a word he says. (laughs) Why? Because his mouth is all messed up. It's all dry and everything else. He hasn't had anything to drink, and he's already been hanging there now six hours. He's all beat up. A lot of blood probably poured into his mouth. He's pretty messed up. And so he starts saying this and he's kind of saying it, even though he's shouting it, it's not very clear. Why would they think he's calling Elijah? You go, well, it sounds the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But why is that even an option? Because it was a popular Jewish belief that since Elijah never died in the Old Testament, he would come back and help people that were hurting. So they're like, oh, maybe Elijah's going to show up. He's calling for Elijah. He wasn't. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is that so important? You got two options on what he meant. Either he was merely quoting Psalm 22, which that is the first line of Psalm 22 to a T. And clearly that's a tie-in. Was he simply saying, you all know Psalm 22 is about me and this is going to end in victory. Was that what he was saying? Or was he personally going through what David prophesied a thousand years prior. Because here's the thing, David wrote that down. Thousand years before the cross, David wrote all this stuff about the cross and how he would feel and everything else. How would David know? That's called prophetic. But when he wrote it down, he wrote it that someone was going to go through that personally. Who is that? It has to be Jesus. Is it possible that he was just crying out, 
his pain and his hurt? I think so. I think that he's saying, God, why do you feel so far away? Because here's what's interesting. Every other recorded prayer of Jesus, he refers to God as Abba, Father, not here. Why? Part of that's a tie-in to scripture and prophecy, but part of that is saying you feel so far away. Why? He's dying a sinner's death. Sinners are not close to God. They're blocked. They're far away. And he's going through what I pray we never go through. Distance from the Father. And he's going, I can't feel you. We always were together. We were always connected. I could always hear you and feel you and see you. And I can't feel anything. I'm in the worst place of my life and you're nowhere. God, this hurts too much. I'm all alone. But notice he doesn't give up. He's in the valley of the shadow of death, but he will not give up. He stays in there. Why? Because he's a man of faith. He knows why he's hanging there. Hmm. After this, after everything that's happened, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he completed his task. He said to fulfill scripture, Psalm 69, 21, I thirst. So now he's calling for wine. A jar full of sour wine, regular wine, cheap beverage stood there. So one of them, either a supporter or a soldier at once, ran and filled a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch or reed and held it up to his mouth for him to drink. But the others, the people that didn't like him, said, wait, don't help him out too much. Let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down and save him. Okay, a couple things you need to know. Why did he take this wine? Because he's got a couple last things to say and he wants everyone to hear what he says very clearly. He also wanted to fulfill prophecy, I thirst. And there was some other fulfillment. It says that he was handed it on a sponge, so you basically suck it out of the sponge, right? But what was it held up with? What kind of reed? Hyssop. Have we ever heard that before? We have in the Old Testament. Why? Two areas. Number one, Passover. Do you remember how when the angel of death was coming in to kill the firstborn? Do you remember how the the angel would pass over the house? How did he do that? You would put what on the doorframe? Blood. Blood of the lamb. What did you mix it with? Hyssop. What did you paint it with? A hyssop plant. And you paint the blood on. What is Jesus doing but dying so that the angel of death would pass over us because of the cross? Right there on that doorframe was Jesus' blood paid for us so we would be free same hyssop the other thing was priests used hyssop for what they would mix it with blood and they would flick it onto things to make them holy that's how you would purify the temple utensils that's how you would purify your clothes that's how you'd purify your priests what is jesus doing but purifying his people right powerful symbol symbols right rising up here Then when Jesus had received and drank the sour wine, he cried out again with a loud, great shout and released these words, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. What does that mean? Dad, it's all up to you now. I did my part. I release it over to you. I got nothing more I can do here. I carried it to its full and now it's up to you. 
Dad, I know you're there waiting for me. I can't feel you. I trust you. I know you are always solid to your word. I know that you will never forsake me and leave me here. And so I release myself to you. What's intriguing is that is also a line that little Jewish kids would use every time they would go to bed. That's how they would go to sleep. That was their little bedtime prayer. Father, Abba, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's all on you, God. And the word that John uses when Jesus gives up his life is he lays his head. Like, I'm going to go to bed now. Good night. And then what's the last line that he says on the cross? We call it three words. It's one word in Greek. The most important words in Scripture are what? It is finished. To die in Greek. Listen to this. If you're a soldier, you use it as a victor's shout. If you're a worker, you use it for your completed task. If you're an athlete, you do it for winning. If you're a merchant, it means paid in full. On all their tax records, when you paid everything completely, they'd stamp to Telestai on it. And Jesus said, we're good. I paid everything. And having said this, he bowed his head. He breathed his last and gave up his spirit. Jesus died on purpose. Where does spirit go? To the Father. Where does body go? To the tomb. When do they reconnect? On Sunday. What happens when we die? We're immediately with the Father. What happens to our bodies? Oh, we'll get at new ones. <laughs> Yay! I like that one. Woo! <laughs> that was awesome. Yay! Here's what's so important about this. The other day I was journaling. And uh, this is kind of weird, but, but sometimes when I journal, I write out questions to God. And then I write down what I think the answer would be. Because and I, and I, it either reveals my heart or it reveals what God wants to say. And so I'm writing out. And I said, and, and I was saying some things and my concerns and everything to the Lord. And he knows what my fears are. And he wrote back in my mind. He wrote back, Lance, you're worried about so much stuff. I got it. It's not on you. I do this. And it was at that moment I was reminded that God doesn't help you be saved. He doesn't give you a boost. He does the whole thing. He's not just giving us a little bit more so that if he can add to your righteousness and then you're saved. He just saves all of it. And, and that's what happens when it says it was paid in full. What does that mean? It means there's nothing you can add to your righteousness. It means there's nothing more that needs to be done except surrender and letting Jesus be Jesus. It means that we don't spend our lives performing. It means that we don't spend our lives trying to earn it. It means we don't spend our lives in religion as much as we spend our lives in trust, obedience, and relationship. 
I know that for some of you, you may be like me and you're worried whether or not he's going to save you all the way. But he is. That's what Tetelestai means. He's got you. And he paid for it all. Listen. I want you to feel the love of Christ. I want you to understand that he did all this that you might be free and joyful. I want you to be able to know that he hung there all the way to make sure you're okay. I don't want anyone leaving here not feeling the love of God in their life. Because he is good and he's worthy to be praised. And you know what happens? Tomorrow, when you have a bad day at work, he's still worthy to be praised. You know what I mean? And, and, and the next day, when you have a problem in your relationship, he's worthy to be praised. And, and then the, the next day, when the bills add up too much, he's worthy to be praised. Because he is great and mighty, and our circumstances don't change that. He is awesome, and he's wonderful. Let's just pray as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your incredible gift. Jesus, thank you for walking through the valley of the shadow of death, not giving up, not, not going with your emotions and feeling forsaken, but believing that your dad's got it covered and you can release right into his hands. You didn't get any visual cues. You didn't get any uh, extra proof, but you hung in there. You walked through the valley of the shadow of death right into victory. Oh, may we live according to that example. May we live like you. May we just say, yes, this is who I am. This is what I do. And I know for certain my dad will take care of me. That God, we would live with full confidence and full strength. That Lord, that we would be joyful and excited and able to worship despite having a bad day. Because right now, right here, when we have a moment of clarity, we know you are worthy to be praised. And so we praise you and glorify you. King Jesus, you are wonderful. And we honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful week. And we'll see you next time. Our pray-